Welcome to the Campion College Podcast, the official home for audio recordings of college events, guest talks, public lectures, interviews, conferences, and more. Join us now for the keynote address from the grand opening of our Academic Centre, delivered by the Honourable John Anderson. It really is something special here today, a significant moment, if the nation only knew it, in this nation's journey. We are in a very confused place, with apologies to those who heard me drag out the old gag a few nights ago. Uh, I'm reminded of a story my father used to tell. He was with the 9th Division of the AIF in the North African desert during the Second World War. was lucky to come home alive. He told the story once uh, of two diggers getting some leave, relieved to be alive. They, uh, they got off the ship in Plymouth for a few nights off, a few days and nights off, and headed as far inland as they could to drown their sorrows and forget the dangers of war. And they were thrown out at closing time onto the street, uh, and Jimmy said to Billy, uh, mate, we've got a bit of a problem, unless you're smarter than I think you are, we're lost. We don't know how to find our way back to the ship. And his mate said to him, ah, it's all right, we'll ask this fellow walking down the street. And he's frightfully tall and very upright and he's covered in gold braid and medals all over the place. He just happens to be the Admiral of the British Fleet on his way home. So they pull him up and they say, hey, mate, uh, we don't know where we are. Uh, can you help us find our way forward back to the ship? And he replies, hey, say, don't you know, do you know who I am? And one Aussie looks at the other and says, now we really are in trouble. We don't know where we are and he doesn't know who he is. <laughs> And that's about where our culture is at. <laughs> the Second World War was a civilizational moment. Can I say to you that we are in another civilizational moment? The dangers we face globally, and what a former Prime Minister has referred to from the arc of autocracy, but also, as Paul Kelly has been writing so eloquently, uh, the trade uh, barriers that are re-emerging, uh, the sheer economic uh, headwinds, the massive uh, things that humanity are grappling with more broadly are very dangerous for Australia. And mishandled, they will undo us. But more than that, in one of those conversations that Paul so kindly referred to with the economic historian Neil Ferguson, when I asked him what, does he th thought, what did he think were the greatest threats to our freedom? And he said, in ascending order, the possibility of a bad state actor or Islamic terrorist obtaining weapons of mass destruction or a bomb and really doing the damage. After that, he said, the possibility of miscalculation between the superpower and the rising superpower. But the greatest threat, if we could only sort it out, if we could only address it and turn it around, is that we no longer believe in ourselves. We deny our history. We have walked away from everything that made us free, that gave us societies that were the envy of people the world over. And following in that vein, David Brooks, who writes for that erstwhile journal, the New York Times, but nonetheless writes very well and is a very perceptive individual, he commented that in his lifetime, he could never have imagined that we would have ended up as divided, as atomized, as hostile to one another, 
and as distrustful as we've become. And just to follow that theme of distrust for a moment, it seems to me to be enormously important to understand that it is not just that, as you can see in all of the surveys, that trust is broken down between elector and elected, Australians and Australians. Uh, it's worse than that. We are losing our confidence in the very institutions of freedom, worse than that, in the ideas and the beliefs that values that underpin them. This is a civilizational moment for us, I believe. All civilizations down through the ages have been powered up by a significant engine, if I can use that word. And the engine has been fueled by a broad-based acceptance and support of that engine and where it is taking and where it's powering that society up. And ours has been broadly Judeo-Christian. You don't have to be a believer to understand that. Neil Ferguson himself is an atheist. But he will say the West was made great by Christianity. The West is in decline because of its abandonment of Christianity. And the influence right really through from the covenantal model of governance in Exodus, through the Magna Carta, through the revolutions uh, failed and otherwise of Britain and of America in particular, have produced prosperity and freedom. Never perfect, but in the democratic tradition that we so enjoy, having achieved a great deal that is worth celebrating and having within itself the means of the peaceful resolution of differences and of policy challenges unique to democracy and in stark contrast to the other great set of revolutions from the French down. Remember Karl Marx was a great admirer of the French Revolution through Russia, through China, through all of the horrors of communism that now so if you like threatened through neo-Marxism, cultural Marxism, you know, identity politics, cynical theory, wokery in general, that now so threatens our way of life from within. So we have a civilization that has run out of fuel and we are trying to fill it with a substitute fuel. And the engine, to put it mildly, is spluttering and in danger in my view of dying. What does that fuel look like? We might think of it in terms of Isaiah Berlin. I've always got to stop and say, have I got that right? It's not Irving, it's Isaiah. Uh, I'm not the only one who got it wrong. Churchill himself asked to meet Isaiah Berlin one day and his office turned up with Irving Berlin. And there were a few awkward moments before they worked things out. Uh, and uh, Churchill said, uh, go away and get me the right one. But, but, but he, of course, talked in terms of that, that I think is so useful, the idea of negative freedoms and positive freedoms. And the negative freedoms really might be better described in layman's language. It's great to follow a Bushman, sir, if I may say so. Uh, you know, when I was thinking about politics, my father said, uh, oh, you'll be hopeless. You'll, you, how will you relate to all those people in Canberra? And uh, a neighbour was standing there, he overheard it, and he said to my father, oh, Duncan, don't worry, we'll just teach him to talk very slowly. <laughs> uh, but, but uh, the idea of negative freedom, freedom from, freedom from external for forms of threat or your own government dragging you away in the middle of the night to a gulag or freedom from addiction, from anxiety, from depression. They're the things that you can never then exercise if, if you're not free on those counts. The positive freedoms. What are the positive freedoms? The freedom 
to reach your potential. It's the freedom to do what you ought. Many great theologians, uh, former leaders of the Catholic Church included, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, have talked about freedom in the end being the opportunity to do the right thing, to do what you ought to do. It's not license, nor can it be selfish. When freedom turns into license, freedom becomes the enemy of freedom. And when freedom fails in the possessor of those freedoms to recognise the rights of others to reach their potential, to be free negatively and positively, that too starts to reduce freedom. And so it is that we've reached a point where we need to understand what has actually happened. We have deserted in an extraordinary way the faith of our forefathers and the great virtue now is autonomy. It's about me. I will do as I please. I regard my body as my private property. I feel, therefore I am. And we operate as islands. We're trying to pretend we can operate as islands. That's where our culture has gone to. It's all about me doing as I see fit. It's the doctrine of the individual which lies at the heart of our freedoms, the worth and dignity of every individual being turned into something that is selfish and it is collapsing under its own weight. It is a great tragedy for people who think that they can live this way. Uh, I note an interesting comment from uh, an academic I've only stumbled across recently, Christian Welzel, and he's a, an academic uh, uh, in uh, a university in Germany. I have to confess to you, I cannot read German and I can't pronounce it, so I'm not going to try. Uh, but he commented on this, or he posed the question, in particular, can Europeans and Americans really go on getting ever more individualist, individualistic and secular? He said, people keep asking me if there is a limit, but I haven't seen any sign yet. As he trawls through the, the data by age cohort, he finds that in every region, each generation becomes more individualistic and secular than the one before. Now, I'm not a lecturer, but I could talk on this for hours because it fascinates me so much. You can be enormously relieved I'm not going to, except to say to you that there's a brilliant rejoinder, a reminder from the late, and I must say I lament his loss, Roger Scruton. One of my greatest regrets is that I never got to a Scrutopia week. That's what he called his annual retreats. You could sign up and go to Scrutopia in the UK, and sadly he passed on after, I must say, an outrageous series of, of attacks by the forces of wokeism in Great Britain. But he made this comment on this uh, secular individualism that's gone so rampant. For us humans who enter a world marked by the joys and the sufferings of those who are making room for us, who enjoy protection in our early years and opportunities in our maturity, the field of obligation is wider than the field of choice. We are bound by ties we never choose, and our world contains values and challenges that intrude from beyond the comfortable arena of our agreements. 
At one level, the saddest thing about this relentless pursuit of the autonomy of the individual is that it, we know from the research, it's such a tragedy for people who pretend they can be who they feel they are without regard for others. We know that, particularly amongst young people, the levels of anxiety, of depression, of loneliness, of self-harm. It could hardly be said to be working. It's a tragedy. But we know too that it's tearing our societies apart because we lack a common narrative and a commitment to our neighbour. That idea that we should love our neighbour as ourselves and do unto them as we'd have them do unto us has so largely given way to the anger and the name-calling and the dismissing of those who dare to express a different view that so marks our common life today. So, my friends, let me pull this together by saying to you that we live in an age when the zeitgeist, as it's called, the spirit of the age, is dominated by elites who worship at this idea of the autonomy of, uh, uh, and it's, uh, as a form of great virtue, uh, and which is leading to such mayhem and such sadness in the midst of such prosperity and such potential in lands such as ours. I want you to simply recall the words of the, uh, the great Margaret Reed, most interesting academic. She wrote in the late 20s, the world has only ever been changed by a handful of people. And it was ever thus and will always be the same way in the future. Now the high ground, the cultural heft in our culture is occupied by people committed to the new secular religion. It is, of course, ripe for the picking by anyone who really understands anything very much at all. And it can be done very easily, often, by simply asking some probe, probing questions. Is that what you think? Why do you think that? Why do you believe that? Have you heard the alternative view? If you can get past the anger, particularly with young people, if you question uh, an uh, you know, a, a, a ruling sort of faddish thought. But my point is this. Change requires leadership, often not by many people, just by people with a greater wisdom, with a greater learning, and with real courage. And that's why this college is so important in our cultural context. Our engine needs refueling. This is the place where you can distill and build up stocks of that fuel to inject back into the motor so that our society can again thrive. It's been a great honour to be with you and I wish you well. Thank you for listening to the Campion College podcast. For more information on our courses, upcoming events, and ways you can financially support Campion College, visit campion.edu.au.